So we're not done yet. Don't go anywhere, listeners. We are calling this portion of our podcast episodes The Whirlpool. On the back end of our exhilarating, intoxicating, and explosive content, we will do something a little bit different and off the wall and have some fun. Or bring in a special guest, maybe two, to join us for what we're calling a nightcap around the subject at hand. So let me bend your ear a bit longer, if you will, and hang out for another few minutes in the Whirlpool. I don't know who on our team twisted the arm of this guy to join us, but that individual needs a raise, and I will find out who it is. So a fitting guest to have on after a convo around American whiskey, uh, Kevin Smith of Jack Daniels. Hey, Kevin. Hey, how are you today? Thanks for inviting me out. No problem. How'd you like that uh, intro on the Whirlpool? That was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I like it. Sometimes I think if I use words that I normally don't use in everyday conversation, that people might actually listen to what I'm saying. So like exhilarating, intoxicating, and explosive. You know, it sounds great. But anyways, no real excuse for people not to listen to you. It's really cool having you on. And I, I really appreciate you carving out a few minutes of your day to talk, specifically on the back end of the subject of American whiskey. So again, Kevin Smith, uh, distillery manager, uh, reliability and technical service is with us and super glad to have you. Well, let's just dive right in. So Kevin, how'd you personally get into uh, your career in whiskey? Well, I'll, I'll add uh, to the to the title microbiologist. Uh, that's how I got started with the company. So Brown Foreman Corporation, which is the the parent company of Jack Daniels um, out of Louisville, Kentucky. So I'm originally a, a Louisville, Kentucky native and went to University of Louisville. They have a strong microbiology program there. And the corporation has its R&D group there. And they like to hire some of the folks out of University of Louisville from the engineering group and from the microbiology group. So that's how I got started uh, as a graduate student, started working in the R&D microbiology lab in, I think, 1995. So that's how I uh, got connected with Brown Foreman as I was graduating with my master's in microbiology, it just so happened they were looking for a microbiologist in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And given the experience that I had, kind of became a shoe-in for the job. So it's just a matter of being in the right place at the right time um, and having the right experience. So I got invited down to Lynchburg, and I've been down here ever since, with the exception of a four-year stint in the fuel ethanol industry. I was out uh, working in the, the larger fuel ethanol side. I, I call it the Wild West of fermentation because they definitely push the boundaries and are willing to trial new technologies uh, in fermentation science. So I was able to see that side of the industry as well and bring some of that knowledge back to Jack Daniels then after a few years away. So I came back in 2007 and have been here ever since. Exciting stuff. It sounds like a good place to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great folks down here. It's a great community. Once you move into the community, you feel like you're part of the, the family. And I've never met a bunch of folks that have that can do attitude that, that can make things happen in really miraculous ways. Well, your team hosted our organization out for a sales meeting, I don't know, four or five years ago. And it was a fantastic experience. I mean, I've known about Jack Daniels and what you guys do for quite some time, but a newfound appreciation coming out and visiting with your folks and your team. So it was great. You, um, you had mentioned being a little bit surprised at uh, when you came to Jack Daniels to learn how it is we do things and, and how we stick to and adhere to the very traditional practices um, of whiskey making, despite being the largest American whiskey distiller. 
Um, and I think that I've found that to be true of, of many of our visitors. You know, you come into this distillery expecting to see, you know, a, a heavy industrial process because it is so large. But actually, people are surprised that it's uh, very craft oriented. We uh, adhere again to the tr- very traditional practices and we can talk about what some of those are. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of Lynchburg, it may seem normal to you guys by now, but still you, you have a lot of people out there are continuously baffled that Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey is located in Dry County. What are some of the things you have to deal with or have to figure out with regards to that? Well, as you can imagine, uh, the Dry County situation is uh, a historical um, thing, right? It, so it comes out of the repeal of prohibition where control of whether a county or a, a locale went wet. Um, it really was left to the local governance. So as you can imagine, down in the south, often referred to as the Bible Belt, there are many pockets that remain dry, you know, that where alcohol sales are not allowed and thus referred to as dry counties, as you mentioned. So I have to you know, give you a little update. Moore County, which is where Lynchburg is located. So Moore County has been a dry county. We actually, I, I like to refer to it now as being kind of moist because... Um, <laughs> By the way, Although, the moist is one of the moist is one of those words. It's a weird yeah, word, isn't it? It is. It is, and a lot of people have a hard time with it. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, and I guess it kind of reflects the the odd nature of the laws that govern alcoholic beverages in general. Just very hard to explain because they're different, of course, in every state, and even in, within states, they're different in local counties, and so they're they're really hard to explain to people. So. Locally, in Moore County, there still are not allowed spirit sales except for at the Jack Daniels Visitor Center. So, um, and this is fairly recent. I, I don't know the exact date. It hasn't been that many years that the distillery has been allowed to sell spirits at the Visitor Center. And it's usually the collectors and the special editions that are being sold at the Visitor Center as well. So in Tennessee, the law allows for any location, um, any spirits producer, beverage producer is allowed to sell products at their site. So, you know, we're technically able to do that around the county in some of the convenience stores malt beverages are actually allowed to be sold. So beer and and other uh, alcoholic beverage are are allowed to be sold, but still there is no place other than the visitor centers at the distillery where spirits are sold. It's a bit difficult to explain. Now, of course, if you go back just, you know, 20 years or so, it truly was a dry county. So that's sort of changed gradually. Thus, uh, the term moist, it's uh, it's still not completely wet, but we're somewhere in the middle. Oh, moist. It it is kind of that (laughs) legend. Right, a story that the, the tourists love to hear about it. The tour guides love to talk about the history of the Dry County and the fact that yes, for many many years, the, this is the site of the largest American whiskey distillery, and spirit sales were not allowed. Right, so yeah, right. Obviously, being the organization that we are on the malt side, uh, along with other specialty ingredients, wanted to kind of pick your brain on. You guys, as a large American distillery, what do you look for in barley malt? Are there certain specifications that are of most interest to you guys that you're kind of looking for? And then secondly, have those specs changed over the years? And then following that, the emergence of craft distilling in North America, single malt whiskeys growing in popularity, has has that impacted the malt choices or product choices for the large traditional American distilleries. I know that's a lot to throw out. We'll just work on them one at a time. Uh, Okay, sounds good. 
I mentioned to you earlier that one thing about Jack Daniels, um, our distillery, we really kind of consider ourselves to be an open book that, you know, we bring tourists in through the distillery. We walk them right through the process. It's really one of the last of the very legitimate tours, you know, through a larger distillery. And the reason is, is because we feel like we've got nothing to hide, right? We adhere closely to the traditional processes of whiskey making, which I can kind of hit on in answer to your uh, your question here. But first and foremost, it's the continued use of the natural malt barley enzymes that companies like Canada Malt provide to us. So we don't do the malting here on site. Obviously, we rely on companies that is their expertise, but we really like the consumers to know that we continue to use the malted barley to feed our yeast in the process, right? So there are many options, the use of commercial enzymes that biotech industry has kind of developed and evolved over the past few decades. In fact, many smaller distilleries and craft distilleries, that seems to be one of the things they go to directly is the use of these commercial enzymes rather than the use of diastase of malt for the conversion process. So um, we think it's important. It's important to us because the conversion of these starches and the balance of the grain from the, you know, the corn and the rye, um, the other grains that we might choose to use, breaking down those large starch molecules into small fermentable sugars that the yeast can can metabolize. Um, when you utilize diastase of malt, it liberates maltose, and whereas the commercial enzymes, uh, the end product is largely glucose. And if, if yeast metabolizes maltose versus glucose, you end up with a much more rich and flavorful distillate. And so that's why it's important to us. And that's why we continue to ma uh, maintain the use of malted barley in our process. So carrying on from there, if you look at the malt, the character of the malt, the quality of the malt, you know, I'll be honest, I think to uh, the larger uh, distilled spirits industry, Malting is is a little bit of a black box, you know. And you know, because I'm a microbiologist, I often say that yeast kind of is the is the the black box, the unknown. It's what people don't really know that much about. It's the mystery and art of the process that that many people sort of look over. And and I would say that even here at this distillery, from the early years that. We didn't have a real sophisticated way of looking at assessing malt quality. Um, we had the basic specs. And uh, one thing I say is, you know, if you consider the different components that you look at on the, on the certificate of analysis, the spec sheet, of course, we want high levels of alpha amylase. We want high levels of, of diastase. We want high protein levels. And so I kind of in high extract levels as well. So I, I jokingly say, you know, we weren't demanding. We just wanted the most of everything, right? Just give us that and we'll be happy. But I think from in the last few years, we've actually begun to look at that and have taken a little bit more sophisticated look at, at what we're specking. So let's do a little bit of a comparison and contrast between distilled spirits in the American whiskey sector versus, say, brewing, for example, right? Um, or even, you know, brewing is similar to scotch whiskey process, you know, where you're taking the malted barley and you're doing a kind of a conversion and then loudering or extraction of that sugary wort that's going to carry on forward to fermentation. That process of conversion and, you know, use of 100% malted barley 
and then the extraction um, there's some some differences there to what we do in uh, in the American whiskey sector where we use a, a grain in mashing and uh, fermentation approach so when we take the malted barley we're basically you know, we have a mashing protocol we, where we take the grain grist, bring it into a slurry that this would be the, the cereal grain. So the rye and the, the corn cook it up to a, a certain temperature, a high temperature, usually about almost 100 degrees, 99 degrees Celsius. And, uh, you know, that's to drive the moisture into those grains and, and try to hydrate those starch granules. And then on the very back end of the cooking process, after we've cooled that mash down, we'll add the malted barley grist into it, but around 155 degrees or so in Fahrenheit. Now I'm switching back and forth between Celsius and Fahrenheit. But that's because we don't want to damage or denature those malted barley enzymes. We want them to carry forward from that mash cooker where they start the primary conversion process into the fermenter, where if we take care of the the physical conditions in the fermenter, sanitation-wise, pH-wise, temperature-wise, et cetera, those enzymes will continue to convert over five or six days of, of fermentation. So it, it's the, the temperature profile of our mashing is designed to take care of those enzymes and allow them to work for so many more days in, in the fermentation. That means compared to the brewing process, the loudering process, where you have to do all that conversion and then extract efficiently up front, we actually have all those grain solids remaining in the mash, in the fermenter, which can be further solubilized over a number of days. So we can actually get a better overall yield potential in our, our process versus a, a brewing and extractive process. So you asked about the specs. When you look at the enzymes, the alpha amylase and the, the beta amylase, the diastase components, if you compare that to what a brewer might use. So, I mean, it, it's actually, it starts even before the malting process. So the varieties of barley that are utilized to produce a distiller's malt versus a brewer's malt are going to be different. They have higher proteins and that higher protein content then allows in the malting process for a higher alpha specifically in diastase to be produced. That's important for us because in our recipes, we're only using about 12% malted barley versus the 88% balance of cereal grains. So we, we need much more conversion power in the malted barley that we use versus uh, you know a proper brewing process that's going to use 100% barley. Of course, in the brewing process, they're going to want to stay away from those high protein content and the highly attenuated or converted malts because of all the proteins that would be in that malted barley that would lead to kind of harsh flavors, bitter flavors, cloudy beer, and, and so on. And so that it's, it is a different spec for the distiller's malt versus the brewer's malt. I'm going to pause there for a second. Otherwise, I could yeah. carry on forever. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Last time, but I don't think a lot of people realize that Jack Daniels is a worldwide, just a brand powerhouse. I don't remember what they had said, the split between uh, revenue of liquid versus merchandise, but it was really, really impressive. I don't know if that's you know kind of your cup of tea uh, that you can speak a whole lot of about, but it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's definitely not my area of expertise. And I'll tell you that it's kind of public knowledge that with the Jack Daniels brand, we sell uh, approximately 60% of our product internationally, the liquid, the, the whiskey. 
uh, Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey. And so in 40% domestically. And so it just kind of shows you the power of the Jack Daniels brand. I mean, this is international brand, world-renowned brand, trusted brand. And so I don't know much about the split between merchandise and, and liquid sales, to be honest with you. But you know, obviously, wherever you have this kind of brand equity that Jack Daniels carries, it's impressive and it's going to drive a lot of that merchandising. And it, it kind of works in reverse, I would imagine, as well. You know, you can see it locally here. I mean, that's really mostly what I see. The number of tourists that come through Lynchburg, Tennessee, a city, a metro, which really the, um, well, the population statistics used to be on the bottle, right? They would say 601, I think it was, population 600. I often wondered when I moved to Tennessee, who had to leave for me to be allowed in with that statistic. But um, it's actually, I think, in the county statistic, it's somewhere around 6,000 total people in the county that houses Jack Daniels. And, And so it's a very small county. And so you can imagine, especially once a year when we have our international Jack Daniels barbecue, when 20,000 to 25,000 people come into town, that's hard to house all those folks. (laughs) And uh, it it gets to be quite crowded, but it's a very nice event to attend. Uh, On a regular basis, though, I mean, there are many thousands of people that come through Lynchburg to take the tours at Jack Daniels on any given day. So there is a steady stream of traffic of folks coming to Lynchburg to learn all these things about Jack Daniels. The traditional process is here. is pretty cool. And if I don't go to a major event, well, pre-COVID, obviously, if I don't go to a major right. event, a concert or a sporting event, and I don't see a Jack Daniels t-shirt, I see them everywhere. It's great. Yeah. There's evidence in pop culture. It's amazing to see that. We in this corporation keep track of that. And, you know, even back to the story of Frank Sinatra and his love for Jack Daniels, I think he's considered to be the first sort of sponsor, a person who uh, was out there regularly and visibly drinking Jack Daniels on stage and to the point where, you know, we've recently honored him with a um, Sinatra Select release a few years ago. That's one of my favorite products that we produce. Utilizes these special barrels where we kind of, after the barrel is charred, they kind of take a router inside the barrel and take some of that char off the wall, but leave it in the barrel that exposes some of the raw wood in the barrel. Of course, it makes it more flavorful and a little bit darker in color. But to me, it gives it kind of a creamy mouthfeel, a substantially different mouthfeel to the Sinatra Select versus the others, God, the regular Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up some of the products that you like. I was going to ask that question. Any other products that you're just uh, submitting to? Um, obviously, all of them probably in the lineup. But <laughs> anything, anything to your just if, what's your go-to or something that you're uh, you're looking forward to at future releases that you can talk about? You know, it's a tough decision, you know, going over there to the visitor center and having all those special bottles on sale there. But I'm actually a Jack Daniels, Tennessee rye whiskey fan. So this is something interesting. Every drop of whiskey of Jack Daniel that's sold across the world is produced here in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And some people find that hard to believe, but it's true. Up to around 2007, I think it was, every bottle, though, it was made with essentially the same liquid coming out of the, the distillery. So even the three early, so you have Jack Daniels, Tennessee whiskey, the black label, Gentleman Jack, which has a second charcoal mellowing step after maturation, and then Jack Daniels single barrel, which gives the consumer <clears throat> an experience of uniqueness of, of the product coming out of one individual barrel. 
those were all differentiated after maturation, but started with the same liquid out of the distillery. But in 2007, we started the new grain bill, and that was the rye whiskey. It's unique in that it has 70% rye, which is a lot of distilleries, other distilleries are producing either the 51% inclusion rate of rye or the higher rise. And so this one is right in the middle and, and allows, I think, the rye to the character to kind of shine a little bit more in a unique inclusion rate. So that's, that's one of my favorites. We started this Tennessee Tasters offering, which these are small releases that are sold here at the Visitor Center in, in Lynchburg or across Tennessee. So it's limited distribution, but it allows us to be a little bit more creative in the smaller batch releases. And one of those was the rye whiskey at barrel proof, which I felt was pretty good as well. There also was a release in that Tennessee Taster series in which I got to be the master taster on. It was the, the Tennessee whiskey that was finished aged in what we call a reunion barrel. So for those products, there are two in that series. We took our Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey barrels after four years plus of maturation with Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey, sent those barrels to, in one case, a winery and the other a brewery and allowed them to finish their products in our used barrels for so many months. And then we received those barrels back and then finished aged Tennessee whiskey in those for several months. And so that's cool. in the case of the wine, it picked up a little bit of the wine character and the beer barrel aged finish age um, was done in an oatmeal stout barrel. So you can imagine some of those beautiful and rich flavors of the oatmeal stout coming into Tennessee whiskey. It wasn't uh, dominant in any way. It was kind of a, a nice blend, the rich oatmeal stout alongside the you know, obviously very rich and flavorful Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey as well. Gosh, Kevin, you're making me thirsty. I'm on, Now I'm like <laughs> thinking about when the quickest point I can get out and grab me some Jack Daniels at the uh, liquor store. Hey, I want to go back to the charcoal mellowing you mentioned. Now, is it a requirement for Tennessee whiskey in general? I know some people think it's just a gimmick. Tell me a little bit about charcoal mellowing. Yeah, I think impressions are a little bit across the board in that it is certainly our belief here at Jack Daniels that uh, charcoal mellowing is an essential and critical component or flavor component of, of our whiskey. And so the requirements for charcoal mellowing in Tennessee whiskey are codified into Tennessee state law. And so it does require for a Tennessee whiskey to be charcoal mellowed. It doesn't exactly say how that has to be done. And so what I do know is that Jack Daniels, again, adheres to the more traditional iteration of charcoal mellowing. And that is when we take our new whiskey off the stills, we drip it literally drop by drop through 10 feet of charcoal. And that charcoal, this isn't activated carbon charcoal. This is charcoal that's produced on site Again, using a very traditional process. Pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. It's impressive. It's a great place to be in the wintertime. You know, go there in the morning when they're lighting up the ricks of sugar maple to hang out there and get warm by the fire. And it's quite an art that the folks that run that charcoal manufacturing area have developed over the years. They'll light those ricks of sugar maple up. They We have to use... 140 proof whiskey to light those. We can't use any other petroleum based really? fuels because that can leave residual flavors on that charcoal. So um, we just use the white dog whiskey to light her up. And of course, the art, especially, is to land that large pile of lumber 
down into charcoal instead of a pile of ashes, right? So they let it burn for a while and they have it timed to where they know when to put the water to it so that it comes down and, and provides us with the right kind of size and character of that charcoal. Now, we use sugar maple and, and a lot of people are, think that it's because of the sugars in the wood, but really this is turned into charcoal. So there's not much of the sugars that remain in there. It just so happens that sugar maple is a, a readily available species around here. It's kind of irregular wood. It's not used for many other things other than this type of process. And so we, it's also very clean. So we're getting a nice clean charcoal from that. So when we take that charcoal, and it's a, it's an expensive process too. I mean, they say that it may cost seven to ten thousand dollars to recharge charcoal mellowing vat, and we have maybe sixty four of those in service at any given time to match the flow of whiskey from the distillery. So it is a resource intensive and costly process. So obviously. We think it does something. We actually know it does something. There's a lot of a talk about the art and science of whiskey making, right? So what we've done over the years, and really one of the, the critical aspects of my role, is to better understand the science behind the process so that we can better practice the art of whiskey making. And part of that is... Uh, in the face of new technologies and whether it be industrial capabilities or these biotech enzymes or things like that, we have to be smart enough to know, you know how to look at those new technologies with a careful and discerning eye to know what we might be able to apply at the distillery here. And so to me, the goal of better understanding it of the process in general, however, you know, we're not, we're not, we don't know everything yet, right? And, and charcoal mellowing is this area where there is still a lot of art to the process. We've done a lot of work over the past couple decades and have a much better idea of what exactly is going on in that charcoal mellowing process. But I can tell you that there are some significant changes to the whiskey as it passes over that charcoal. And those changes then dramatically affect how that whiskey interacts with the wood through the four plus years of maturation. So this is really the, the secret to Jack Daniel's success. It's that, that charcoal mellowing. You'd think with me being the microbiologist that I'd tell you that the yeast is the most important thing, but I really do believe that it, that it's, you know, and, and we have a nice yeast. It provides a unique flavor to the whiskey, but really it is the charcoal mellowing, I think, that provides the signature and unique flavor um, in Jack Daniels. Now, I'm going to go a little bit off the rails and give you my no, opinion no, versus, versus the science, right? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that's that's so very unique about Jack Daniels is that it stands up first of all it is it is unique but it does stand up very well to blending and mixed drinks and so many people obviously enjoy their jack daniels mixed whether it be jack and coke um, or whatever but you, you know you can always tell it's jack and your jack and coke whereas other brands tend to lose their identity in that mix and i i really do think it is my opinion that it's the charcoal mellowing that provides that unique character that holds up to the mixing. Yep, I would agree with you for sure. Well, hey, if I had phone lines, Kevin, I would open this up and I'm sure there would be a bunch of follow-up questions and we'd probably get into some more details on anything and everything about your process. We're running out of time. So on behalf of Country Malt Group and then uh, Kyron Armin and the rest of the crew over at Canada Malting, who uh, who certainly provides support to you guys on the, the barley malt side, I want to uh, thank you for your time today. Really enjoyed well, having you. 
Thank you for the invite. And I wish you could join me, but it is Friday afternoon and I'm here and I'm uh, <laughs> thinking I'm going to run over to the sensory room now and finish off my week right. So Yeah, you should do it. You deserve it. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it again, Kevin. And uh, you, you have a fantastic weekend and uh, hopefully we'll make it out here sooner rather than later. Thanks again. Well, I appreciate everybody joining us on uh, on this episode. I uh, had some fantastic guests and look forward to uh, you joining us next episode. I believe is on hops, another uh, sexy topic, if you will. So on behalf of Country Malt Group for powering uh, the Whirlpool and the episodes here, we thanks and look forward to uh, chatting with everybody soon. Cheers. Cheers.